Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Targeted. I'm David Chalfont. Now, this being the first episode, um, this is new to me, so uh, I'm going to be reading a, a script. So if it sounds like I am reading, it's because I am. <laughs> and as I get more used to this format, I hope to leave the script behind and uh, speak more freely. But for the meantime, uh, and at least for the first few episodes, I'm probably going to be reading from the script. Um, so bear with me. Uh, if you are listening to this, I'm guessing that you are either a parent who is being targeted by the family court, a miserable, beat-up, frightened parent fighting for your right to be a parent, or perhaps you're the mother or father or friend of a targeted parent. And if you are a targeted parent, I know that you're feeling pretty hopeless. Maybe you feel like you've done nothing wrong, or maybe you've been convinced that you have done something wrong. And first thing I want to say is this. Take a deep breath. Try to remain calm. This is a long journey, and there's no easy way out. Um, but you are not alone, and you are not helpless. And my intention in creating and sharing this podcast is to encourage other targeted parents to share some of my experiences and what I've learned and hopefully give you back something that your opponents, the ones who've targeted you, have tried to crush, and that's hope. I want to offer you hope. Now, this series is going to be um, focusing on targeted parents. Now, I know that in the family court, uh, there are people who are, are targeted that are not parents. Um, there are couples that go to family court and they have no children. Uh, this series is really for targeted parents. Um, my recommendation for uh, for couples who go to family court and are and do not have children is that you get out of the court as fast as possible. Uh, give up as much as you possibly can. Settle, 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 and get away from court. It is a horrible place. One of you will be targeted. One of you will be favored, and they will just destroy any shred of trust between you. And since you've already got a broken relationship and you don't have children, uh, my recommendation is just end it as fast as possible and separate and get, a, and get as far away from each other as possible until you guys can, you know, can find some uh, way to be civilized, some common ground. Uh, it's different if you have a child. When there's children involved, the children have a right to both of their parents. So the situation for a targeted parent is uh, vastly different. You can't quit. You've got to keep fighting. And that's why I made this series, and that's why I'm, I'm uh, trying to give you back your hope. But let me start by telling you a little bit about who I am and how I got here. One night, six years ago, in June of 2014, I came home from work to find my home empty. It was about 10.30 at night and I expected to see my little girl in bed asleep. Probably her mother too. But no one was home. I texted, hey, where are you guys? Did you go to a movie? And then while changing out of my work clothes, I got a text response. I'm home now. Can you come downstairs? We need to talk. Wearing just shorts and a t-shirt, I went downstairs only to find two NYPD officers waiting for me. They told me that the court had issued her an order of protection and that I had five minutes to collect a bag of clothes and leave my home. It was starting to rain outside and since we'd only recently moved to that area, I didn't have any friends nearby. I didn't know anyone. I had no personal car. I had nowhere to go. And I had done nothing wrong. That night, I asked the police officers to drop me off at the nearest and cheapest hotel. I literally had $75 in my bank because I had just paid all the household bills and my next payday was a couple days away. 
I ended up sitting up that night, all night, afraid to even look under the covers of the bed in a hotel room that looked like some disgusting, exaggerated movie set. Now, I could very easily make this show all about telling horrible stories about my ex. I've got hundreds of them, and I'm sure most of you listening to this could tell horrible stories about your exes. The dishonesty, the cruelty, the betrayal. But I want you to know that this is absolutely not what this show is about. The intention of this show is to support and enable parents who've been targeted by the family court system. It is not to defame or attack my child's other parent. Let me suggest something right from the start. Your ex might be the absolute worst. Completely selfish, deceptive, ruthless, cruel, and just horrible. And maybe you're perfect. Maybe you're not. The point is this. Once you entered the family court and had your life put under the authority of the family court judge, the primary responsibility of the court was to protect your rights and your ex's rights and your child's rights according to the Constitution of the United States and the law. Every judge swears an oath to do that. It's in their code of conduct, which you should look up for your region and read it. If they did that, well, I know that my case would have resolved in a matter of months. And most cases would. Months. Not years and years and years. And perhaps most family conflicts would never even end up in court. I mean, most family conflicts belong somewhere else. But I'll talk about that in a later episode. I do want to uh, stop for a minute here and say that uh, abuse is real. There are victims of abuse. There are women who are abused, there are men who are abused, and there are children who are abused. In cases of actual, especially physical or sexual abuse, uh, those need to be resolved immediately, and those are very serious situations. Those are not serious, those are not uh, situations of targeting by the court. Those are real crimes, and they should be handled like real crimes. Um, which I, I will uh, address a little bit more uh, later in another episode, but I do want to make that distinction, okay? I'm talking about targeted parents who've done nothing wrong and are having their rights violated by the court. If the family court followed the Constitution, in other words, if the family court followed the law, it would start with the recognition that both parents are equal in the eyes of the law, and it would hold to the presumption of innocence and the standards of due process. Again, these are things I'll discuss in detail in another episode. But for now, I want to get back to who I am and how I've gotten to the point where I'm compelled to share my experience with you in this forum. Getting back to my story. After that horrible night, I went to court the next day. In court, I was accused of being controlling. I was accused of being manipulative. I was accused of being scary. Now, while those are not flattering opinions of me, or anyone, they are just opinions, aren't they? Someone else might have a different opinion and call the same behaviors taking initiative, or being persuasive, or standing your ground. What I was accused of was entirely subjective. And just because someone doesn't like you doesn't mean you did anything wrong. So I wasn't at all worried because I hadn't done anything wrong. And I hadn't broken any laws or violated anyone's rights. I was not abusive. I was aware that the mother of my child wanted me out of the picture. But I was a daddy, a parent. I had my rights, right? 
Surely the court would just send us to a mediation service to work out a way to co-parent our child since clearly the parent's relationship was over. And it was over. Surely the courts would recognize me as an equal parent and protect my rights to my daughter. I couldn't have been more wrong. What did happen was this. First, the court made sure to say the right words for the record. That I was presumed innocent and that I was an equal parent. But then, the court treated me as if I was already proven to be a dangerous person who couldn't be trusted. As if the words of my accuser was the evidence of a crime. The court said the words that I had the right to presumption of innocence. But then it took away my home, my child, and my freedom and called it precaution. I was told that the restrictions were necessary until I was thoroughly investigated. I was told that this is what due process means by my own attorney. And by the way, what's the difference between precaution and prejudice? I mean, if you think about it, aren't they the same thing? The court said the words that I was an equal parent, but then put my daughter under the complete and unilateral control of the mother. And everything was called temporary. Remember that word because it will come up again and again in the future episodes. Temporary is a scary word. Now, I want to step away from my story for a second because I want to clarify and acknowledge something. There are many small organizations out there and plenty of blogs and podcasts trying to raise awareness of father's rights. And I fully support those efforts. The statistics are undeniable. There is an overwhelming number of fathers being driven away from their children and their homes and denied equal treatment by the courts. But I want to encourage you all to look past the him versus her scenario because I think it's misleading. It's really easy to say, oh, the courts always give the children to the mothers and make it all an issue of gender bias. But then how do you explain those occasions when the court favors the father? There are mothers out there who find themselves to be the targeted parent, especially if the father is connected politically or to law enforcement. Seriously. Now you fathers out there, you know how lost and alone you feel. Well, just imagine being one of the mothers who suffer the prejudice of the court. They find even less sympathy because, well, gosh, if the court thinks the mother's the problem, well, she must have done something really bad. I titled this podcast Targeted because that's a better description of what the court actually does. Yes, most of the time the court targets the father, but sometimes the court targets the mother. What is important to note is that the court definitely favors one parent and targets the other from day one. Why? What is that the court is trying to accomplish by doing that? What is the court's agenda? Another reason I don't see this as a father's rights issue is because if you look at the law, I mean the actual laws that apply to parenthood, fathers already have the same rights as mothers. In the eyes of the law, we actually are equal. There are even rulings made by the Supreme Court of the United States that make this very clear. And I will definitely talk about those cases and rulings in upcoming episodes. I promise. Because every targeted parent, in fact, every parent, needs to know about those rulings and they need to know their rights. So if it's not the law that's violating the rights, then it's the court. It's the court violating the law, which is a big problem. 
Yeah, I often say that uh, being in family court is like being um, in Alice in Wonderland because it seems like the exact thing that's supposed to happen is the opposite of what happens in family court. I mean, the one thing that no judge is supposed to do, and that's be prejudiced, is like step one in family court. The court favors one parent with a temporary protection order and targets the other parent with unjustified temporary restrictions. Temporary. But why does the court do that? Now stay with me here, because this is hard to wrap your head around. I know you're bitter about your ex's behavior. We all are, believe me. But what you need to know is that that is exactly where the court wants you to be. The court wants dads and moms to be in absolute war with each other. The court wants wild allegations and the parents to destroy every shred of trust between them. Why? Now think about this. If two parents come to the court wanting custody of their child because their relationship is over and those parents are equal and have equal rights to the child, then the only answer the court can give is equal custody, period. It's that simple. Of course, there is the problem of what does equal mean? I mean, life just isn't equal, right? And while parents' rights are equal, their roles as parents almost never are the same. So in all fairness to the court, dividing custody equally is not easy and probably not always in the child's best interest. Hmm, in the child's best interest. Another scary phrase in the hands of a judge. I'll do an episode on that too. <clears throat> but getting back to why the court targets one parent and favors the other. The court knows that the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights limits the power of the government. It knows that the state doesn't own our children and the judge doesn't have the power to decide that one parent is superior to another. So why doesn't the court just order equal custody and call it a day? You need to know that there is a huge incentive for the court to grant custody to one parent, and I mean beyond the headache of determining what equal means. Uh, now, <clears throat> I know I'm gonna go a little bit down conspiracy road here, but I'll give you a hint to what that huge incentive is. Money. And I mean lots and lots of money for a lot of powerful people. I'm definitely going to do an episode on that. At least one, maybe several. Uh, but the longer you endure the, the conduct of the family court, the more obvious it will become that the court's decisions aren't logical. And they aren't based on law and they are definitely not in your child's best interest. In fact, you start to realize that only a stupid person could be as blind and naive as the court seems to be. But let me tell you this, these are not stupid people. They're all very smart and educated and experienced. This is a deep-rooted scam and all the attorneys, the clerks, and the judges are in on it. They all play their parts. And let me just say, when smart people act dumb, it's almost definitely because there is money involved. And maybe something else. But I'll save that for another episode. Uh, maybe I'll call it Conspiracy Day. But uh, getting back on track here, it's definitely in the court's best interest to grant custody to one parent for the money. So somehow, the court needs to choose one parent as the custodial parent and one parent as the uh, second-class uh, visitor. But how can it do that if the law clearly recognizes parents as equal? The fact is, the court can't actually make that decision in most cases. 
because it can't justify that decision if it goes to an appellate court. Remember, equal parents have equal rights and the state doesn't own our children. Now, the court is supposed to use the best interest of the child as a guidance in its decision. But the court doesn't actually have the final say about a child's best interest, unless the parents are unfit. In other words, abusive, neglectful, mentally unstable, addicted to drugs, which the state must prove. And if they can, I mean, if the state can make a case, well, oh, happy day, because the judge gets to throw the book at someone and look like a hero. But on the other hand, if both parents are considered fit parents, it makes a big problem for the judge because the law recognizes that fit parents have authority over the best interest of their own children, not the court, not the state. So let's review here. Before the state can take jurisdiction over the best interest of the child, the state must first prove a case that one or both parents are unfit. Do you get that? The state has to prove unfitness, which means you don't get to do it. You don't get to prove the other parent is unfit. That would violate the standards of due process. Boy, that's gonna be a good episode. Be sure to tune in. Uh, but for now, keep this in mind, spoiler alert, uh, a case of abuse or neglect or unfitness must be brought by a disinterested third party according to the standards of due process. That's why the state prosecutes crimes because an accuser isn't allowed to profit from the punishment of the accused. A parent would benefit from the decision that the other parent is unfit and therefore a parent is not a disinterested third party. You getting this? You don't have the standing to charge the other parent with a crime. But the court wants you to believe you can. The court wants the parents to destroy each other with false allegations, exaggerations, viciousness, selfishness, and basically just behave like crazy people. So the court allows, and I'd say encourages, the protected parent to bully the targeted parent without consequence. Gambling. The court is gambling that the targeted parent will become so frustrated and bitter that he, usually he, sometimes she, will either commit a crime or give in to a settlement. And that's really the goal. The court wants to force a settlement. The court needs parents to settle. If the court can push the targeted parent far enough to force that settlement, then the final decision will never go before an appeals court, and the court never has to answer for any of its behavior. So it's become regular practice that the court gives one parent a protection order and turns a blind eye to almost any form of psychological bullying while treating the targeted parent with unexplainable, unsubstantiated suspicion and takes away their rights, their freedoms, their property, uh, limits access to their child or children, ordering uh, visitation schedules that interfere with the targeted parent's job and livelihood, destroying the targeted parent financially, and essentially turning that parent's life into a nightmare. And worse, it destroys the child's childhood and the relationship with that parent. It's disgusting. All the while playing its very convincing game with the help of the attorneys that this is the process of determining the safety of the child. Scam, scam, scam. And the lawyers all play their parts. Oh boy, lawyers. Should I talk about lawyers now or do an episode on them? For now, just let me say this. 
The law is very clear that parents are equal. And the standards of due process are very clear. If a criminal act, such as abuse, rape, molestation, was committed, the state must indict, charge, and prosecute. And first, they have to present a prima facie case that a crime actually was committed. <clears throat> and this has, to be committed, uh, this has to be done by the district attorney's office. The state must prosecute, not a biased attorney paid for by a parent. Civil cases go to civil court. Criminal cases go to criminal court. In those cases, someone has broken a law or violated a contract. Something provable. What about family court? Uh, in family court, that's almost never true. The, the things that are charged in family court are almost never something provable. My family was ended by the court and I was banished from my role as a parent because of nothing more than words. Because of the words, I'm afraid of him. Now, what law applies to that? Whenever I ask that question of any one of the court's officers, I'm always told, uh, Mr. Chalfant, you really need to speak to an attorney. As if talking to an attorney is going to make this all make sense. Well, I have spoken to attorneys and I can tell you this. No family law attorney will ever mention the violation of the constitutional rights by the judge or question the integrity of the court in any way. We as targeted parents really need to think long and hard about this. What exactly is the role and purpose of the attorney in family court? Who or what does the attorney really serve? If you happen to have an attorney representing your case, try to get them to explain to you how the orders imposed by the court on your life and relationship with your child are legal under the Constitution. You'll see your very experienced attorney get really uncomfortable and try to change the subject. Uh, they'll try to get you to focus on telling the dirt about your ex. And they'll tell you that questioning the integrity and the legal powers of the court will piss off the judge. And that is not good for your case. I'm going to come right out and say it. Family court attorneys work for the court's agenda first. Now, <clears throat> don't run out and fire your attorney. Because this is also true. Uh, if you're just getting started in this, unless you've been involved in this for years and years and years, like me, and even I'm not truly ready, you are not ready to present your own case. Uh, and that's the trick. <clears throat> you see, lawyers, they all know the technical process of doing things, like entering evidence into the record. Uh, you don't. And they will use that knowledge, not their knowledge, but your lack of knowledge, against you. They'll tell you you're not doing something right. And you don't know that you are. You don't know that you're not. You don't know how to do it. You think you're doing it logically and fairly, but that's not the way court works. Uh, so <clears throat> the judge can arbitrarily decide to block your evidence or whatever you're trying to say if you're not doing it in the technical, legal, and attorney-like way. So uh, don't fire your attorney yet, but you should be aware that the attorney's first going to serve the court. And so at some point, that may be a conflict of interest for you. Uh, but I've sidetracked enough. Let's get back to what I was talking about. <clears throat> the family law attorneys are there to push the parties to the settlement that the court has indicated it wants to see. By targeting one parent, the judge, referee, or magistrate lets the attorneys know who is supposed to voluntarily give up the custody of their child in the settlement. Everything that follows 
will have only the purpose to convince the targeted parent that they cannot win and that settling is in their best interest. The targeted parent's attorney will tell their client that the best they, can th the, the best they think they can get is 40% custody, and that should be their goal. And the longer it takes to get there to convince the targeted parent, the more pain the court will allow to be inflicted on the targeted parent. That's the game. And it's an absolute farce. Now let's talk a little bit about the court, uh, about the judge. If you educate yourself, you're going to find that the law does not support what goes on in family court. Therefore, the law and almost every piece of material evidence will be avoided by the judge and the attorneys. They'll pretend that the law prevents them from seeing the evidence, yet. Uh, they'll all put on a show to create the illusion that this is a very serious situation and that the court has to go through this long and painful process to determine the safety and best interest of the child. Can I say BS? I encourage you to research the biography of your judge. Ask yourself, what qualifications does a judge have to decide what's best for your child? A degree in child psychology or child development? Uh, was, the judge, was the judge ever a social worker or a teacher even? You know, your child's teacher knows more about your child than any judge ever will. The judge doesn't even want to meet your child. They'll put off interviewing your child as long as possible and pretending that they don't want to traumatize the child. In the six years of my case, I have gone before more than six judges, magistrates, and referees, and not one, not one, has ever interviewed my child. Of course, your child, like mine, will be subjected to numerous interviews by child protection services, court-appointed psychiatrists, police detectives, therapists, attorneys, lots of scary, strange people talking about lots of scary, strange things. Just not the one person who claims to have the final say in the best interest of your child. If the judge is an expert in anything, it would be the law, right? So why does the judge, who has never met or observed your child, keep telling you a parent what's your child's best interest? And why does a judge refuse to talk about the law that gives them the power to make those orders and ignore your constitutional protections? You get this? Judge talks about the best interest of a child, which they have no expertise in, and refuses to talk about the law, which they do have expertise in. Does this make sense? No, that's because it's a con job. And, and here's the hardest fact I'm gonna to have to share with you. If you are a targeted parent, your opponent is not your ex, so don't get sucked into the scam. Your opponent is the court itself. And I have worse news. <clears throat> you will not win in family court because the court controls the record. It will not allow you to present any evidence that exposes the court. It's just like a gambling casino. The house always wins. So, <laughs> now you're wondering, um, where's that hope I promised? You know, there are a lot of people out there who have won some ground. They've won a battle and they will tell you, you can do what they did and win in family court. But I have found that most of those people have won a battle for themselves in court, but often at the cost of the relationship with their child. 
I didn't want that to happen to me. And I don't want that to happen to anyone. If you're like me, then your focus is on what really is the best interest of your child. And what's best for your child is to have both parents, you and your horrible ex. Now, I am of course not talking about real cases of violent abuse. That's got to be dealt with immediately and harshly. I mean, that's criminal. Always, always present any evidence you have that your child is being physically or sexually abused to child protection services and don't let them ignore it. Make them do their job. Once they know you're the targeted parent, I mean, I try to limit myself to two conspiracy theories a day, but I definitely think child protection services is also in on the court's game. So if you believe your child is being physically abused, I recommend you take them immediately to a hospital emergency room. Have them assessed by doctors. Doctors are mandated reporters. If a doctor believes your child may be in danger, they are required by law to report to Child Protection Services. As a targeted parent, you will probably not be listened to by Child Protection Services or the court but they will listen to a doctor's report, hopefully. Uh, parental alienation is trickier. Uh, with alienation and manipulation, try to remain calm. I mean, alienation is serious and it is abuse. But if you're the targeted parent, the court doesn't want to hear from you. The truth is, the court is allowing that abuse because it serves the court's purpose. And the court can just excuse itself by blaming the parents and sending the child off to therapy. Guys, these judges, the family court, they're not good people. Ugh. I know, it's getting worse. Where's the hope? My friends, it's bad. I'm not gonna lie. I, I can't help you win in family court. No one can. Because no one does. Everyone loses in family court, especially the children. So don't think that because you hired the most expensive lawyer in the world, you're going to win. Uh, that doesn't happen. So, after saying all of that bad news, I guess what I can help you do is I believe I can help you not lose. Remember, the court has limits on its power. The only reason it gets away with such abuse is because it's really good at convincing people that it has that power. If no one ever challenges that power, it's almost the same as if it was legal. People just assume that whatever the judge says is the law. That's the illusion. The family court is like a bad magic show. It's all distraction and misdirection. What I wanna share with you is not only the truth about the family court, and your rights as a parent, but that you can stand your ground and you can stay relevant as a parent. If you want to keep, build, and grow a relationship with your child in spite of the court's assault on your life, I will help you. I'm not going to give you legal advice. I am not a lawyer. I will give you logical advice. And my first advice is this, don't get bitter. They say bitterness is like swallowing poison and hoping the other guy dies. Let it go. Don't let the anger and frustration determine your actions. Find a safe way to vent. Go for a run. Uh, I mean, talk to your mom, but realize that this is gonna destroy your mom, so. Try to go easier on her uh, with the bad venting. 
Um, if you have a friend event too, that's good. Uh, but you'll probably lose that friendship after about, oh, I don't know, two or three years of venting on them because no one can take this that long. <clears throat> so the best thing to do is a lot of prayer and a lot of physical exercise. But don't believe that you have to give up custody of your child. And don't believe that giving up your child is in your child's best interest. Those two uh, things the court wants to convince you of are not true. You should question, you should challenge, and you should absolutely appeal every negative decision the court makes. Uh, the court's going to make a lot of decisions that you can't appeal. They know the game. Uh, but you should definitely try to appeal anything you can. And you should take a lot of deep breaths and try to remain calm. That's actually your best weapon, is remaining calm. This is going to be a long journey. Remember, the court is trying to break you if you don't break, you can't lose. Six years ago, I was expelled from my home, banished from my daughter's life. I was a stay-at-home dad at the time, by the way. I was banished from being involved in her schooling the second month of kindergarten. The court said she didn't want me causing problems. I never met any of my daughter's teachers. I never saw a report card, awards assembly, school play. I missed everything. I was forbidden to have phone contact with my child. I mean, even prisoners get phone co contact with their children. Or any contact at all with the child's uh, other parent. I was forbidden to have my daughter stay in my home overnight. My time with my child was less than a work week per month and less than a month per year but I never gave up. I never broke. I never lashed out at anyone. That's what they want you to do. It took me over four years to change anything. I went through every investigation and examination, proved my innocence again and again and again. It meant nothing to the court. Nothing improved until I educated myself and began speaking for myself and respectfully questioning the court's authority, which no attorney would do. But I think uh, what's made the biggest effect was that I never gave up. I never broke, though I may be financially broke. <clears throat> I never screamed at the judge, this is unfair. Instead, I calmly quoted the law and asked for an explanation of the obvious conflict. And I always, always made my time with my daughter the greatest priority. Now, I have almost a third of every month, overnights, phone contact. I've been able to take my daughter on two-week vacations. And by the way, I still have never won my case. In six years, the court has never made any decision about custody. None. I've never been uh, granted the opportunity to even present a case on my behalf. It's crazy. But the court knows it can't let me make a case because then it will have to make a decision and it knows it can't. My case is bonkers crazy. After two years of a ridiculous trial effort to convince me to settle, the opposing counsel actually asked for a mistrial against their own present presentation. Crazier, the judge granted the mistrial and then recused herself from the case. All this to avoid me presenting any evidence. That was in 2007. <clears throat> now, did you catch that? The opposing counsel 
asked for a mistrial on the case that they presented to the court. And the court granted it because to continue would be prejudiced against the only people that ever presented anything to her. Now, in a real situation, a mistrial is granted because the jury might have been misled by something. But there's no jury in uh, family court. So the judge had to admit that she herself was misled by these, the presentation that was presented to her. And therefore, she had to grant a mistrial. And then she had to recuse herself. Uh, and I still haven't figured out why she recused herself. Uh, I didn't ask her to do it. And I'm the one who thought she was prejudiced. So that was in 2017. Uh, if you look at the calendar, um, when I'm recording this, it's 2020. It's July of 2020. And we still have not begun a new trial. It's been nothing but delay, delay, delay for three years. Because I keep saying on the record and reminding the court that it does not have the authority to defy the Constitution. I'm not bragging here. It's pitiful. What I have is pitiful. But what I have is so much more than they wanted to leave me. You know what? My daughter and I have an amazing relationship. It's a constant fight. I will survive this. My role as a dad will survive this. All for that relationship with my child. And my daughter, because of my efforts, will also survive this. If you want to survive this, Educate yourself, stand your ground, and stay calm. The court's best weapon is bitterness. It will make your life as bitter as possible. It wants bitterness to control you. <clears throat> Remember, bitterness is like swallowing poison and hoping, and hoping the other guy dies, right? Don't get bitter. The court is gambling that if it can exaggerate the bitterness between the parents, eventually one, the targeted parent, will break. I don't know how my case will end. I have many challenges ahead and I haven't got the answers yet. But I know the law is on my side. I know I can't lose. And I know that it's my opponents who are making all the mistakes. I hope this pilot episode of Targeted has resonated with you. I hope it's got you thinking. I hope you'll explore other episodes. Uh, this episode was pretty broad sweeping and general. In the next episodes, I'll focus more on specific topics that you'll face as you go through this nightmare of a journey. For now, take a deep breath, remain calm, and never lose hope. I'm David Chalfont. And I want to thank you for joining me on Targeted. Hi guys, this is David. I want to thank you for tuning into the first episode of Targeted. Um, and uh, as you prepare yourself or, or get ready to, to explore the other episodes upcoming uh, for the series, I thought I'd uh, give you a little homework assignment. Um, when I was uh, first uh, getting to the point where I thought this is insane, this has got to make sense, I've got to find out what's going on, I was scouring the internet for information and I came across an article that uh, I want to recommend to you all. This is an article that was written in 2010 uh, and it was published in the Huffington Post or Huff Post. Uh, so if you go to HuffPost.com and look up the title is the worst thing a woman can do in divorce proceedings. Uh, subtitle, The Abuse of Orders of Protection. This was written by uh, 
Liz Mondanaro. Uh, she is a family. She was uh, a family court uh, lawyer. She is also a uh, a self-proclaimed um, feminist and activist for women's rights. So uh, this is a very interesting article uh, because it was written by a woman. Uh, by an attorney, by a feminist activist, and it is a very honest uh, portrayal of what goes on in family court. Um, so I recommend uh, that you check it out uh, because um, it sent me in the right direction on uh, a lot of the things that I've uh, learned about uh, the court. And um, hope you'll come back and uh, check out some of the other episodes. And uh, remember, remain calm and take deep breaths. However, social norms still expected good girls to say no. Ladies were expected to make men respect them and certainly keep up the appearance of self-respect and chastity, if nothing more. So the conversation is a back and forth between two passionate lovers who want to stay together for the night, but both know that society would consider it inappropriate behavior. So, he is trying to make up excuses for why circumstances make it okay for her to stay. She knows the excuses won't convince anyone, but she really wants to stay with him for maybe just a cigarette more. Everyone in the 1940s got the context of the lyrics. It was sexy, it was funny, and it was something everyone could relate to. Fast forward to the 1980s when women were trying so hard to prove that they were no different from men in the workplace or in the bedroom. Looking at that song in the context of the 80s made women mad because why was society telling her that she was bad for wanting sex? And how come he wasn't worried about what people think of him? For people who don't understand context and try to judge it by the rules that didn't apply to the time period the story actually takes place in, this song was offensive to women's equality. Now, fast forward to the 20-teens and the hashtag MeToo movement and ideas of toxic masculinity, and suddenly the song is now a scene of a sexual predator who has trapped a woman who clearly wants to leave and is afraid for her life. The man should be arrested. He's a monster. Context. So, what is the context of a family that justifies the existence of family court and family law? The simple fact is that some behaviors that are acceptable within a family are not acceptable outside of a family. And certain behaviors acceptable outside of a family are not acceptable within.